0: you don't want to overextend yourself and you do want to find balance and that's within the fi world but also within pursuing so many things and i'm constantly assessing to see if i feel like i'm still okay like if my energy is still okay if i'm still in balance if i'm still positive if i'm still happy if i'm still laughing
1: Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello,
2: and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. And I could not be doing this without my co-host, Justin. What's up, man?
1: Oh, not much. Uh, Just trying to get settled in after being on the road for three weeks. How about yourself?
2: Yeah, you know, just grinding, doing this entrepreneurial life type of thing. No more corporate job. It's nice not commuting back and forth two hours each day. So I'm thankful for that. But Justin, I know that you just recently started to use your companion pass. So where are you going?
1: Uh, yeah, so I did just start using the companion pass. I think I had it for a total of five minutes before I submitted my, my first request. So <laughs> the first one is actually out to Dallas in April to see Eric Church. Um, but something, a little tidbit for the listeners, if you're you know working on that companion pass and you're thinking, man, I want to book all these trips, but I got to wait till the companion pass comes through. I realized when I got mine and I logged in, it would actually let me retroactively sign Leslie up as the companion on some flights I'd already booked before I even earned the companion pass. So uh, go ahead and snag up the flights you want and uh, add the companion later.
2: So Justin, I know Leslie is your companion right now, but what sweet things do I have to do for you to add me to that companion? Because what is it? You get to switch it three times during the lifetime of your pass?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I could swap it from Leslie to you and then back to Leslie. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, we may have to take that offline to discuss. All right,
2: sounds good. But, Justin, enough about us. Let's talk about our awesome guest, Tamika, today. And so she podcasts over at the House of Fi. You can go listen to the podcast there. But that is not even close to where her story ends. She's done so many amazing things. And she's just a hustler. I mean, she's taking these different paths and these different routes that other people aren't doing and getting so far ahead.
1: Yeah, I will always say the coolest thing about doing this podcast is hearing these ideas of ways people are making money that you would never dream of. You know, they say reality is stranger than fiction. I mean, she's making six figures on the side at a lice business. Like, who would ever even thought of that? (laughs) Yeah, it kind of bugs me that I
2: didn't think of that first.
1: Jesus, the dad jokes. (laughs) And I do
2: have to mention, since I'm an audio freak, during this episode and next week's episode, Justin was traveling. So the audio is a little bit worse. You probably won't even notice, but I am literally psycho about our audio. So just wanted to give that warning. But let's let Tamika tell her own story.
0: So if I'm going way back, I guess that I have to start with the fact that I have immigrant parents. I was first born in the United States. And so when we were younger, we lived in a housing project in the south end of Boston. And, you know, that was my world. We, we were able to walk to school and things like that, but we weren't able to necessarily play outside when it got late or, or other, you know, we had to take other safety precautions but there were lots of immigrant people around us a lot of people that were asian and a lot of people that were latino and then of course people from the islands so that was my experience growing up and surprisingly when i got to the 5th grade and i had to switch schools i ended up going to getting into a program in in massachusetts where you are sent to a more affluent town and so i went to brookline for my schooling with people who lived in mansions or who lived in very expensive million dollar homes. Today, it's very difficult to get into that town. And so that kind of was part of my experience as well. Just, you know, the growth from one environment to the next environment and what were some of the differences between the two and which one did I want to be a part of? Which one did I aspire to be in? And as time went on, my parents, they had been saving. They had been planning to move. My dad and, and mom are savers. And when I was in high school, we moved to a different part of Boston where we moved into a two-family home, which is the ultimate. If you're they were house hackers before it was called house hacking because <laughs> they lived in this home, they had saved and they put down a sizable 30% down payment. And They basically have lived for free for the rest of the time. They're retired now. They actually did retire early. Truth be told, I didn't think of it that way. But technically, they retired before 65, you know, late in their 50s. But still, it counts, I guess, technically. And yeah, (laughs) so, you know, that was my experience growing up. My parents always taught me to live on less than you make and save first But that was really the extent of it. There was no other nuance to finances and personal finance. There was no talk about investments. There was no talk about CDs. At the time, my dad used CDs, certificates of deposits, which were paying about 15% back then, but he didn't tell me that, you know, I learned a lot of what I know now later on.
2: Okay. So then moving into college, how did you choose your school? What did you study? And- I know from your blog, but some of our listeners might not know that you incurred quite a sizable amount of student debt from your various degrees.
0: I mean, I've listened to some of the episodes on your podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts and there are some people who just did everything right, including you. Actually, you were on (laughs) my podcast and you're one of those people. Um, Thank you. I was not. I was not one of those people. So while I didn't want to incur so much debt over time. There were some mistakes that I made and I ended up incurring almost a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. I believe it was close. It was in the eighties in terms of the actual money that I took out, but with interest over time, it ballooned up to about $94,000 in student loan debt that I had to pay off.
1: And can you list off the the degrees that you ended up with to, to get that $94,000 worth of debt?
0: Yeah. So really funny story. When I was either doing my master's, I think I was doing my master's. I think Kanye West came out with like college dropout <laughs> and was making fun of all the degrees that people have. So I have three degrees. I started with And so, yeah, listening to him, I felt like an idiot. But I started with sociology and women's studies from uh, UVA, University of Virginia, go Wahoos. And that degree cost me about $24,000. And I went straight from that degree when I realized that I I chose women's studies and sociology and didn't want to be a professor and didn't know, you know, (laughs) what I was going to do with it besides write. I went for the math and I became an accountant. I have my master's degree in accounting and that cost me about $35,000 with scholarship and with working at the school to get a full scholarship in the end. Those first few semesters cost so much that, you know, that was the amount that it totaled to, even with all of that help that I tried to mitigate it with. And then eventually after working in accounting and at one of the big four, I went back to school to become a nurse which I am right now. That was part, you know, maybe 20 something thousand dollars and altogether it ballooned to 94.
1: So I think the the path that you just described there with going through these different degrees is a is a very, you know, that's what a lot of people in our society end up doing. It's what a lot of people feel like they should be doing. Now and since you have children of your own and you know one day they're going to be making these kind of decisions Knowing what you know now and after and seeing the debt and what that looked like, do you think that you will encourage your kids into taking the same very traditional look at education or do you think you will try to, you know, open up options for them to take alternate means or or just how do you feel about higher education now that you've been through so much of it and now that you kind of are looking at it through a different set of lens?
0: Yeah, for my kids, I've thought about this a lot because I think that with every generation, you look at what you had to go through and the different norms and mores that kind of put you on a path. And once you get to the other side or a certain level of accomplishment, you realize that you could have done things differently or you might have moments of insight where in hindsight, everything is just 2020. And so when I look back, there's no way that I could pressure them to do what I went through. We are going to... We're going to kill it. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're going to take the extra classes in community college. We're going to do what we can to get them scholarships. We will house hack. We will do whatever it takes. And we also save for them for college. And if they choose not to go to college and to maybe do a trade, or if they choose to do it in a non-traditional way, we will support that. The goal, I think, that Phi has taught me and has shown me the goal is for them to monitor their net worth the entire way and make decisions that are going to have lasting impact. Sometimes the decision is that you go to college and that the job that you get on the other side is worth it. And sometimes it's just not. One of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was in accounting was that one of my coworkers. His parents made a chart for him before he went to college, and if he only majored in a liberal arts degree, they wouldn't pay any part of his college tuition that they would saved up. And depending on which degree he chose, they would pay a higher percentage. So if he chose something like engineering or accounting, where they knew from experience that he would get a job that was worth The cost of the degree, they would help him out.
2: Wow, (laughs) those are some cutthroat parents.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember talking to him about it. So this is something that I've always just loved this this whole industry, this personal finance, and how people flip things and do things and are creative about it. And with him, I I was just like, wow, I wish I wish that that was the case for me. And I don't know if I would have been. I think I would have seen the value in it enough to make sure that I chose a degree that was going to give me a job immediately because that's essentially what you're buying. And the cheaper or the more on sale you can get that purchase, the better.
2: So after you're done with all your degrees, so you're basically a psychologist, accountant, nurse, (laughs) (laughs) you have all these different qualifications. You're just kind of hopping around trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. So you have this $94,000 pile of debt. What is your attack strategy?
0: Yeah, I never do just one thing. So I'm on my second marriage, right? (laughs) So I got (laughs) married back then and we both made a decent amount of money. I think I was making in the eighties at the height when we were married and he was making above that. And we purchased a house, the one that I'm still in now. And I know I had money. I had 20,000, between 15 and $20,000 in the bank that I had saved. My my side. He had money that he had saved just in a bank, just in a checking account, like not even invested. And then we were also investing, but the investments were way lopsided. We just liked cash more than we put into the investment side. So that was a mistake. But when we went through our divorce, I realized that because of his income and because of my comfort. I basically allowed myself to just drift through and not intentionally and strategically manage my money. I was doing enough. I was saving enough. I didn't have to live paycheck to paycheck. I had a house. I was able to purchase, you know, put down and all of that for the home. We had a car and we had a daughter. And I literally was asleep until until then, like the hunger that I had to mitigate debt in the past at the graduate level and have a side job and the hunger that I had to, even with going back to school with nursing, trying to do it on the cheapest way possible, I chose one degree over another that was cheaper, just those types of things, that type of outlook, I kind of let it go to sleep. And when I went through that divorce, I woke up again. And I realized that here I have this money, but it's not doing anything. I have this debt. I still have this debt. I still have it. And it was time to, instead of kind of, you know, letting that second salary be my, I wasn't depending on it. I was saving up my own and everything, but I was, it was like a, like just a safety net. And so I wasn't, I didn't feel any, Push. I didn't feel the push to do anything amazing for some reason. I don't know, and I just drifted through. But once I woke up, I just went to town. I I went back into my older habits, you know, listening to financial coaches and financial gurus. And I found Dave Ramsey. I found Joshua Sheets of Radical Personal Finance. I found Mr. Money Mustache, of course. And I found I listened to so much. I consumed so much. I read so much. And I debt snowballed all of it. I also joined the military and that paid part of it. And I just wanted it gone. And I wanted to feel like at that point, I actually hadn't found phi. I just wanted to feel like I just need what I make and what I have. I wanted to feel independence again. And I wanted to feel like I was in control of My finances again, and that there was nothing that was going to allow me to go to sleep on my finances and drift again.
1: So, a quick question on the you kind of tossed in there like a seemingly small blip, but you said you joined the military, which is a a pretty huge (laughs) thing. So, you know, how much debt did that help you pay off? What was the commitment? And looking back on it, was it worth it? Because I think this is a tangible action that listeners could possibly take in their situation. So I'd love to hear more about exactly, you know, like I said, how much they pay off, what was the commitment and looking back on it, was that experience worth it?
0: Okay. The experience was absolutely worth it for me. Absolutely worth it. That experience, I was already in decent shape. I had gained my freshman 15 and they kind of stayed on through grad school and everything. And sometimes I'd be up and sometimes I'd be down. But I got back into just great shape. I ran some races, half marathons and things. And I got, you know, I was in shape. I learned how to shoot. It was a military unit that was a CASH, which is a combat support hospital in Massachusetts at Fort Devens. And so you learn triage and how to do urgent and acute care I got to do some work at Mass General Hospital. So absolutely worth it. And then I have my Army family that I don't get to see as much anymore, but I just texted them all today in a group text. I have them too. So for me, absolutely worth it. The commitment was one weekend a month. And then over the summer, you might be sent to Texas or up to another base somewhere in the Midwest for two weeks. Generally, it's actually three weeks, but it can be two weeks. And at that place, you would maybe set up a hospital and practice and go through drills, or you might, you know, do some shooting on different weapons and things like that. And of course, your PT tests every six months to keep yourself in shape. And what they paid for at that time for a nurse If you signed up for the reserves, you would get $50,000 before tax. So it was was really more like $30,000 once, depending on your, your tax bracket. And, you know, that's not part of, I knew that it would be $50,000. I didn't think about the tax implication of that, but it didn't matter. That was one of the degrees. So that was completely worth it. And in the meantime, I would make four or $500 a weekend and, that money would go towards the student loans as well. So it was like a double, you know, you're making income and there's these huge chunks that you get that you can put towards the debt. It was absolutely worth it. When I pregnant with my son, after I had remarried and everything, I knew that I wasn't going to make it 20 years and I just decided that it was time. So if you wanted the sign-on bonus, you, you'd do three years. If you wanted the student loans, you do another three years. At that point, at six years, you can just kind of go on a hold for two more years where you're off of the roster. And in case anything comes up, you might be called, but you didn't have to go to the weekends and in the, in the summers. It was a very good commitment, not too invasive. I still worked and your jobs are generally, they are very supportive. So I was a nurse, so I had to sometimes do weekends. And if the weekend fell on a weekend that I had to go to the base, I, you know, they were very accommodating for that. It's awesome.
2: So a question I have as being the only person who's never been in the armed forces or in the military, and this is something I struggle with because, I mean, I see all the inherent benefits like, I want to serve and like do my part, but I am super rebellious. So I'm wondering, like from both of your perspectives, because Justin and Tamika, you both have served in the armed forces, being an entrepreneur, being someone on this phi path. How is it that you take or maybe I'm just misinterpreting from seeing movies and stuff like someone yelling at you, telling you what to do all the time while that's the thing that you're trying to escape with phi.
0: Well, nobody was yelling at me. I don't know about Justin. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, was afraid of that too, because I like, I like to just, you know, be curious and explore things as you can tell from my story. But no, you know, sometimes if you're late or if you, I mean, you know, you quickly learn what's going to get attention and what's not. And for me, I did what didn't get me any negative attention.
2: So, Justin, I'd love to hear you chime in.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think the, the problem is most people's experience or like what they, they see in movies and things are either a training environment, you know, where you're going through like a basic training or a boot camp type situation, or you're in like active combat, right? So in which neither one of those situations um, <laughs> are normal life for the military. So yes, like when I was going through a reserve officer training, I did ROTC in college I had to go through something called field training, which is kind of like our little mini boot camp thing. Yes, people are going to be screaming at you. But at that point, you know, it's just a game, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is just a mental game to see, can you handle the pressure and can you still make good decisions while someone's yelling at you? You know, they're not yelling at you because they're trying to belittle you or demean you. If you're smart about it, you know that there's a purpose behind it. And that purpose is to simulate chaos and to see can this person handle it in that situation? So to me, as long as you understand that, you don't really have a problem. And then after that, you're in your kind of day-to-day job. And that is just not the way the military is, especially not anymore. I mean, things have changed so much. But, you know, most people's exposure to the culture and to the financial benefits, unfortunately, are all they get is in the movies. And it's just not very accurate.
2: Well, thank you both for enlightening me because I think I really <laughs> it was swayed by the movies. You see, like guys, like every morning at PT, they like call you a maggot and spit on you. <laughs> so yeah, thank no, you for clearing that, is that up. That's not the
0: thing. <laughs> That's not what I would say would deter me at this point. One of the things that I knew I couldn't do was that there's a lot of hurry up and wait is what they call it. You get oh my gosh. In the military, you, by the time people are just waking up, you've done so much. By eight o'clock, nine o'clock, it's pretty great when things are, how much you can get through, but then you might have to wait till two o'clock before anything else happens and you can't go anywhere. So that's the part where I think it's like five, where you might just want to go home because the work is done, but you can't, you're on the clock because you have to stay. So that was difficult for me.
1: My angle of that is like being active duty, unlike the reserves, like I have to, what they call like permanent change of station. I have to move. So not being able to be in control of where you live seems like a very strange idea for most people, like not getting to pick what city you live in and having that change on a pretty, you know, like a three year basis. So that is the thing that I think some people could have a problem with that, that losing that control of your life, of your actual location. Yeah. Okay.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks guys. There's definitely a lot of inherent benefits and it seems like there are some downsides too. So I guess you kind of have to look at your specific situation and weigh the pros and cons. But Tamika, let's get back to your story because we haven't even gotten to the like crazy entrepreneur Tamika that emerged after you (laughs) quote unquote woke up. So I guess what age were you when you went through that divorce and when did that first side hustle kind of take action?
0: So I was in my... No, oh, you're really asking me these interesting questions. Good. <laughs> um, just over thirty, maybe. Okay. Maybe thirty, and the side hustles did not start until I cleaned up the the debt mess. So once the debt mess was cleaned up, and you go through that that process where you're cutting things and you're sending all this money to a target, one thing it did for me was it let me know exactly how much money I can move towards a goal, which is so important when you aggregate it all. Another thing it taught me was how much money was moving towards non-goals, things that weren't a priority for me, but that I was spending, you know, dripping money towards a lot of eating out, a lot of eating out that was excessive. So getting a drink and an appetizer and a meal and a dessert, you know, Just a full on, just a lot, just a lot to waste your money on and other things too that would leach money. And then once I got to the point where I didn't have to go through that snowball extreme debt payoff, it just became apparent that I could then save more for retirement, save more for just cash reserves, but then explore, explore what I wanted to do next. And that's when I first started a product development for a breastfeeding product that I thought of during the process. I met my now husband and over the years, a couple years in, we, once there was more free flowing money, we, I started this, you know, I was feeding the baby and everything. And I, I realized that when you go back to work and you have to pump and all of that, and uh, you guys don't know about this. But <laughs> I de- I developed a product related to that that would make it easier for women to just come and go and pump and everything. And so just going through that process was really awesome because I had to work with a designer and I had to work with the manufacturers. And in the end, there's some things that I would do differently, definitely, because what happened was I went through all of these steps and I developed something. And then I realized at the end that the cost of development was going to be more or the same as what I would want to sell it for. And so the profit margin wasn't there, which I could have found out by talking to the manufacturers first and kind of designing the item, if that makes any sense. Cody, I don't know if you had to do that with your business and figuring out the cost of making a product versus what that profit margin is going to be earlier rather than later. But that's what, that's the mistake that I made at that point. However, I learned how to set up a website and to start writing some blog posts to get some traffic while I was in development and how to set up a Facebook group and to post and all of that back when at least four or five, four years ago. So yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. And I learned the same exact way by making like terrible, terrible failures and mistakes before my disc golf company, which is like pretty successful now. But I mean, I made every mistake in the book, but the skills I gained are the same skills you're talking about. Learned how to market, learned how to build a website and just do all that kind of background stuff. And then like now I could probably set up a website in like an hour. And if there's a viable business behind it, it's pretty easy to set up. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. you've found that as you've developed more and more businesses.
0: Yes, I definitely have. I was not the most technologically savvy. I would consider myself like middle of the road in terms of that. I know how to do the basics, but now my skills since the most recent businesses have just exploded literally. There are things I've done in the last few weeks that I didn't even know were done in the world. Like, so (laughs) this (laughs) is just in terms of my website. So, you pick up those talents along the way. And in the end, if you keep practicing them and implementing them, it becomes a skill that you can then even use for financial purposes as a side hustle or something. And I will say that luckily, when I started and came to that realization for the breastfeeding product, I had not spent too much money, I had spent time And so anyone who's thinking about going into a business, I recommend spending your time before your money and getting as much resource and help and reading and everything beforehand so that when you and if you do falter, you're not out thousands and thousands of dollars. I was only out, you know, the cost of a website and the cost that I paid the the designer who was pretty affordable at the time and a seamstress and, you know some postal charges. So it wasn't very much. My next business was the one that cost a little bit more in terms of an investment. And that was the head clinic that I own today, <laughs> which was another byproduct. You guys also don't know about this. Just <laughs> <is> had lice. <laughs> you guys don't know about breastfeeding or headlights, but I have to deal with these things. And so I generally, if there's a problem in that space, sometimes I have this, you know, the idea to go further and create a business if I see an opportunity.
1: So can you go over some of the business specifics of this lice company? I mean, I, I can imagine somebody hears that and doesn't even understand what you're talking about or how you get into something uh, like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So I am a nurse. I, I am a school nurse now. And so I saw lice in the schools on multiple occasions, really bad cases that we couldn't figure out how what the parents could do to get rid of them. And in fact, at one point, I went through a lice outbreak at one of the schools, the school I used to work at. When we checked the entire school, I mean, we checked over 600 kids and teachers and a, third of the people in the building had lice because that's how quickly it can spread. Head lice, they don't harbor any diseases, but they are itchy. They can keep a kid from focusing while they're trying to do their learning. And they also bring about the other kids can, if they know that you have lice, there could be some harsh treatment from classmates and things like that. So That was the time when I learned about a lice clinic. We had someone from a lice clinic come in and she brought us some combs that you use to remove lice. And back then I still itched, just hearing the word lice or having to check children, I still would get itchy and keep my distance. But after checking all of the entire school, after that I could whip out a check in a matter of seconds. And eventually I opened my own. I opened my own clinic. We use a machine. So we have a license agreement with a company and a college, a university that created and has the patent for this machine. And we dehydrate the bugs and the eggs in your hair. So you don't even get to see it. If I do a treatment on someone, which I don't do as much today as I did when I first started the business last year at the beginning of last year. You use the machine, it dehydrates everything, and then you comb out all of that dead debris and the person is done with lice. So you're saving the parents and the family time. You're doing a lot of education during the time that you're doing the treatments. And you're helping the kids return back to their normal life. As soon as they know that they have the lice, you can get rid of it within 45 minutes, and it's just a blip for them versus weeks and weeks of combing at home with parents that don't know how to remove it. And it's cyclical, so it will last. We've had it last for years in some people.
1: And do you have to be a registered nurse in order to to get the ability to have these machines?
0: No, but you do need to... So we have moms, actually, the, the people who first came in, they were just moms that their kids got lice and they, the whole class had it or a good portion of the class. And because they you know, treated their kids, they were able to treat all of the other kids and keep checking. And so moms own or parents, uh, we have some doctors that own pediatricians, nurse practitioners that their children get lice and they write their own prescription for them. And do the treatment at home for them. And then a week later, they realize it's not gone because the prescriptions that are so antiquated that they don't work anymore and you can't raise the pesticide or the chemical levels because you're putting it on children. So they're antiquated. The lice have evolved and they're resistant. And so then you have pediatricians and nurse practitioners who have to come into the clinic eventually at their wit's end weeks later or months later after trying to get rid of it. And they feel so bad that they were just giving out the prescriptions and not really understanding exactly what it takes. And some of them will buy a clinic, buy a territory. And then, of course, school nurses, hairdressers, like we have uh, two gentlemen that created their own line of products called fairy tales that you might find in stores. And they own whole states' worth. They own maybe all of Michigan or something. Five clinics in that state, and then some others. So, there's all different types of people who own LICE clinics. And this particular type is moving to a franchise model. They were a licensed territory when I joined. So, my contract is for a licensed territory. And, you know, the decision has to be made whether I want to be a part of a franchise or not. The more I'm in the fi world, I lean towards not, but I still have some time to decide.
1: And if a listener actually wanted to start their own lice clinic, what is the barrier for entry and you know, where do they look to get one of these regions or franchises?
0: So Lorada Sciences or Lice Clinics of America is where they could go to buy a territory. The price of a territory has gone up. Significantly in the last two years. So that's something that it's still very affordable. If you want to do it under this model, it's not the most expensive of franchises, but it is more expensive by at least $20,000 than what I purchased my machines and everything for. So it has gone up to the point where even if I just sell my territory, it's an automatic 20-something, you know, there's a, there's an automatic gain there. But there are other ways to start clinics. There are some places that just do combing. They don't kill the bugs first. They just comb it all out. I don't really like that method as much. But, you know, you don't have to be the one who's doing the treatments. And it's very satisfying. You wouldn't think so. I didn't think so. I was scared to death when I first had to, you know, had my first client but you do get some training, you get training in person, you get training via Skype for the machine, and then you actually fly out and get on the job training before you open your clinic. So there's lots of resources. And, you know, one area that is open is mobile. If you're willing to travel to houses and do the treatments, you can, you can make quite a bit that way.
1: Now that you kind of got the business going and steady What do you feel like is a a reasonable number that you can count on to net every month after you pay your expenses and any of your workers? How much are you actually making off this business?
0: I had to pay taxes on, I believe, forty something thousand dollars this year. It's a six-figure business. It I crossed the six figure mark before the end of my first year, but just depending on how you structure the expenses, it can be more expensive or less expensive, basically. You can take home more or you can take home less. So, you know, you pay your staff, there's tips and stuff that they get, there's, you know, products and stuff that you buy and you sell. A good portion is product sales that I sell and then the treatments themselves are can be pretty expensive per person. So, I think it was very good for our first year in business.
1: That's awesome. I mean, like that number, you're like for a lot of people, that's that's their financial independence income that they're looking for off (laughs) this one clinic that you started. That sounds like now you're almost completely hands off, like not quite, but like very, very passive. So that's incredible.
0: Yeah, my clinic is slow. So (laughs) compared to some others, so, you know, that have been open a little bit longer
2: but to make it, your entrepreneurial journey doesn't stop at the Lice Clinic. I mean, I've seen on your blog that you've been doing like computer programming and you started a blog and a podcast. So just where do you get the motivation and energy to focus on all these different things at once?
0: Well, right now at 10 p.m. No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, I think that growing up the way I did, I've been thinking about this a lot because there's just so much that I am so curious about and that I want to explore. And so I, I am like, where did this, why, where does this come from? Some people are so content. They don't need all of this. They don't pursue all of this. And I don't, I mean, I love it. So I'm happy. And so it's good for me, but sometimes I want to understand what, where, where it comes from. And I think, Focusing so much on education as a singular focus for all of those years meant that I couldn't explore passions. Even as a child, I wanted to explore passions. I begged to play the piano. I begged to do dance classes. I just wanted to explore passions. And so when I was older and I could do it myself, I did I did dance and now I'm podcasting, I'm writing, I'm blogging, and it's just I I just have that in me. It's always been in me and I think I'm kind of making up for some lost time as well. And then as my children get older and older and more independent, I get more of my time back and so I don't mind growing some of this while I still have them to care for and then knowing that as time goes on, it's going to get easier and easier.
2: Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, it seems like it's nothing to you, but to other people, it's like all these things at once, like one thing might overwhelm someone else while they're working a full-time
1: job.
0: I don't wanna be insensitive to that. I really don't. Because sometimes people talk about you know everything that they can do or have done. And when you hear it, you're just like, okay, that's not me. And you kind of tune out from it. And so on one hand, I, I don't want to talk about it as though it's normal. It is not normal. <laughs> it is abnormal. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I would hope that people take away from it is that if you have an inkling of interest in something, you know, just think of Tamika, What would Tamika do? And just <laughs> try it. <laughs> you know, just give it a little bit of a try. And you do not need to go full force and do a coding boot camp like me. That is just how I roll. But you can take a course over time, you know, with a more long-term view. I mean, I have a friend, my best friend, and she calls herself the steamship and she or cruise ship. And she calls me the speedboat because I literally, <laughs> that's just what I do. I've done it since she's known me. I guess the thing, the other thing that's important is you don't want to overextend yourself and you do want to find balance and that's within the five world, but also within pursuing so many things. And I'm constantly assessing to see if I feel like I'm still okay. Like if my energy is still okay, if I'm still in balance, if I'm still positive, if I'm still happy, if I'm still laughing and even with the technical difficulties or with the figuring out the back end of a wordpress site if i'm still feeling like it's a positive experience and that it is an experience that i want then yeah you got to go for it
2: that is so admirable so tamika if people want to get in contact with you maybe learn more about your story pick your brain where is the best place they can reach you
0: so there's a couple of places that they could go i do have a podcast house of five podcasts and that is with a co-host of mine wendy and Wendy and I are just trying to help families who are pursuing FI. You have a couple of other things to think about when you have to account for a family and the costs of that. So it's not just for families. It's for everyone, but that's one place. And then another place is reluctantfrugalist.com. And I love podcasting. I love writing, but... I definitely would rather spend my time podcasting than writing. So, there's a couple of blog posts up there, maybe a, a 15 or so, and I plan to do more. But that's one place where you can definitely get in contact with me.
1: So, to make a for everybody listening, what is the best like tangible tip that you could give them for helping them along their path to financial independence?
0: One key takeaway is to always think creatively and deliberately, and almost perseverate on the different components of your situation. If you want to reach Phi and you feel like you're behind the eight ball, or if you're just finding this and you're not knowing where to start, time is of the essence, of course, but you do not have to jump in right away. So think about where you want to start. If you want to start on the debt, Think creatively and deliberately about it and figure out where the components are that are causing you the most pain and figure them out and ask people and read and contact me or contact, you know, this show and ask where you should start. And then also to make sure to find a balance when you're going through the process, because it's a long process to fly. It's not just a sprint and I know I love sprinting, and I love doing things quickly, but it really is a marathon. And finding balance along the way so that you're not either so sparse that it's painful or so excessive that your whole environment and your mind is cluttered, you know, finding balance will help you stay focused for the long run.
1: Yep. And so I think that deliberate mindset is very important we try to look at actual tips and things to get people to take action but it's also important not to kind of outrun yourself and to do that deliberate thought like you said with your investments if you would have done some cost analysis on Mm -hmm. what it was going to take to sell the product that would have been helpful and when you're looking at choosing college degrees to go to if you looked at return on investment how helpful that would have been so as actionable as we need to be that deliberate thought is also an important thing to kind of marry it with so i think it's a good good take
0: Yeah. And if you want an even more like specific tip, always, you know, when we're spending things and we still want to experience things, always price hunt. I am always hunting so that if I can get something that's the same exact experience, but for a cheaper amount through Groupon or through a coupon code or through some other means, like one cool thing I didn't actually end up doing it, but I wanted my daughter to do a STEM camp over the summer. And so I always talk about how I interviewed to be the nurse there with her at the camp. And she would have gone, instead of paying thousands of dollars that they charge for this ridiculousness, this ridiculous costs for this, these camps, she would have gone for free. And in fact, I would have been paid to have her go and I would have been there with her. So there are ways to think outside the box. And that's what I meant by that. Those are more, a, a more actionable way to think of it.
2: Yeah, it's definitely thinking outside the box and you just got to be creative to really succeed and really outperform everyone else. Cause if it was easy, then everybody would do it.
0: Yeah. That's but
2: Tamika. You're not ready for this because I'm about to hit you with the wild card question. And I mean, everyone here knows nobody's ready. Justin's not ready. I'm not ready. Ready for this, Tamika? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not ready. Okay.
2: If you could be any animal in the world, you're transforming tomorrow and you are stuck being that animal for the rest of your life. What would it be and why?
0: Mm. A baby snow leopard. What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so specific. That, that did not just... That, that came after months and months of deliberation and thought. That did not just come out randomly. All right, you've got
2: to give me something. Like, why a baby snow leopard?
0: <laughs> well, this question is actually perfect timing because we went to the zoo this weekend. so we went just to see the baby snow leopards. And they were... Oh, they were resting. It was like they were in retirement. They were <laughs> resting and just looking out. There was a breeze. And then when they felt like it, they were playing pranks and jumping on the mom and jumping on each other. And they were playing hard and they were resting and, and relaxing. So, I mean, that's all I want to do. I I could relate. So that's it. Baby Snow Leopard.
2: Wow. That was a good timing of that question because you really <laughs> came out hot with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> But Tamika, Justin and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We had such a great time talking to you and your story is amazing and hopefully that entrepreneur who's kind of scared to take that first leap got some inspiration from this episode. And we already gave your contact information. It'll be in the show notes, so if you want to hit up Tamika, pick her brain a bit, I'm sure
1: she'd be more than happy to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much Tamika.
0: Thank you guys.
1: Wow, Cody, what another cool episode. I mean, this went all over the map. You know, we had divorce, we had military, we had college debt, we had entrepreneurship. You know, this is a huge gamut that we covered. Yeah, she's just done everything
2: to optimize her life. Like you said, from joining the National Guard to pay part of her student loans to starting all these side businesses. I mean, she has a podcast, she has a blog, she has this lice clinic. Like, she literally went and bought a brick and mortar store that she's licensing out now, and and she barely even does any of the work herself. And on top of all that, I mean, she just went through a coding boot camp a couple months ago because she wanted to learn it for fun. Like she's just adding to her side hustle repertoire. And like Grant said back on episode 16, skills are your most valuable asset. If you can accumulate a bunch of skills,
1: then you're just going to become so much more valuable in every money making facet of your life. Yeah, the common theme that was easy to see here is Tamika just kept bettering herself in whatever fashion that took, whatever the situation called for. And you know what? It's also cool that she's a, a local New Englander. Maybe there's just something in the water up here. <laughs> Must be that Massachusetts water, baby. But,
2: Justin. Whoa! What is it, Cody? I think it's the call to action. Take it away, Justin. Alrighty, Cody.
1: The call to action this week to me is pretty straightforward. There's a lot of websites out there with either free or close to free material like skillshare code academy just go out there doesn't have to be coding find a hard skill take a course see if it interests you and if it does keep going with it
2: yeah that was one of the most powerful things that tamika did and like i said tamika is just so interesting she's a wealth of information and if you want to hear more about her story you can visit the show notes at the slash tamika and that's spelled t-i-m-i-k-a and so you can see the show notes there anything we talked about all the resources her businesses how to contact her and if you like how the show's going, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out and get recognition and get more awesome guests on this show. And if you want to join one of the most interactive and fun groups on Facebook, visit thefishow.com/slash community to join our Facebook group. So thank you so much for listening, guys. See you on next week's episode of the Fi Show.